0: Good morning. How's everyone doing? Amazing. Glad to hear it. All right, guys. Welcome. Hey, so glad everyone has decided to join us this morning. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Jeff. My beautiful wife Jessica and I. We are the youth pastors here at Grace, and I get the privilege of serving on the teaching team. uh, Where I get to bring a message about once a month. I I don't know if you can hear it, Um, but I've got a little bit of a sore throat and a little bit of a cough. Okay, I was sick last week. I thought I was good, fully over it, and then last night, it just flared back up, okay? Uh, sore throat, coughing, I'm feeling much better than I did last night, but I'll also fully understand if I'm the last one picked for prayer, okay? I get it, all right? I don't blame you. You can just walk on by. I'll, I'll direct traffic, okay? Uh, so I, 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 so if I, if I drink a lot of water or if I just suddenly start sounding like the Mandalorian, that is why, Okay? because uh, it just changes. I have no control over it at all, but it's all right. I believe God's going to get us through this, uh, and I think God has some some good words for us today, okay? Um, we are in the book of 1 Kings. Um, this will actually be our last week in 1 Kings for a short period of time. Uh, we're going to go where we're at in 1 Kings right now and we're going to jump to the book of Ecclesiastes and we're going to spend uh, about 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes looking at uh, what, what Solomon actually wrote. So where we're at in 1 Kings is we're coming to the end of the life of Solomon and so while we're here and Solomon is fresh in our mind, we want to look at Ecclesiastes because let's be honest, if we don't, it's about another three years out before we get to Ecclesiastes <laughs> just at our pace. So let's look at it now while we remember who Solomon is, okay? All right, so we're going to be uh, in chapter eleven. If you want to jump ahead, uh, if you're you're just now joining us, um, we're looking at Solomon. He is the son of the great king David. Right, David was king. He ruled, and he passed on before he, before he passed. He gave the kingship to his son Solomon. Now Solomon, from a worldly perspective, has been uh, an an incredible ruler in Israel he has actually led Israel into what is known as the most prosperous time in Israel's history Um, they have more money they have more peace they have more goods they have more land than they ever will in any other time in history from a worldly perspective Solomon is an amazing king from a spiritual perspective he is incredibly poor and that is because he to accomplish and acquire all the things that he's done, he's broken commandment after commandment after commandment that God had given him. And so although from the outside looking in, Solomon is doing an amazing job, from the inside looking out, he's actually broken and twisted and doing things completely backwards. Last time I was up, I talked about um, the thunder in the distance. Right, y'all remember I gave you that cool sound effect. the It was supposed to, not important, still not over it. But neither are we. I know. It could have been amazing. Uh, but I talked about the thunder in the distance, about how we're reading about the early life of Solomon, and we could see just these, 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 these ripples of thunder, of what the storm that's coming. The storm is not yet here, but it's on its way. I titled that message, Thunder in the Distance. Today's message is titled, The Storm is Here. The storm is here. And so what we're going to be picking up today is we're going to see that thunder that we saw in the distance way back uh, in the early chapters of 1 Kings. We're going to see that they're now fully upon us, and we're going to see what happens in the life of Solomon now that the storm is here and present. All right, before we do, let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us, God. I just pray for your spirit to be here in this place, God, that there would not be a single one of us that doesn't hear and understand your word and receive your truth today. God, that if there's any of us right now that need convicting, that need leading, that need guidance, God, that needs correction, Lord, I pray for it, even if it's uncomfortable, Lord. I pray for your presence in this place. I pray that you'd be with me as I speak, that it wouldn't be my words or my biases, Lord, but it would be your word and your truth that is heard today, Father. Um, I, I, lift, I lift you up here, and God, I glorify you in everything that we do, Father. We love you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, right. Before we get started, I want to, uh, let me get something real quick. This is called suspense. Y'all like it? Okay, cool. <laughs> all right, does anyone know what this is? All right, disc golf. Yes, all right. Correct. This is a disc golf basket. Um, actually, I brought some disc case. We got bored. I just want to. No. Okay. This is called a disc golf basket, and disc golf is is easily my favorite game in the world right now. Um, I got into it like six months ago, and I uh, I've played it pretty much three times a week since then, uh, and I love to get out and play. And it's a really simple game. You start really far away, and you try to get the frisbee in the basket. It's pretty straightforward. But whenever I first started playing, I remember asking uh, about specifics of rules, right? Because, you know, it, it's one thing to just throw it in there. That would have been embarrassing if I, re- if I missed just now, right? Yeah, look. It's one thing to just throw it in there. But then, you know, you kind of want to know, all right, if I, if I throw it in and imagine with me, it just, like that, sound effects, uh, and it hits the basket, but then it like skips out. Does that count? No, it doesn't. What if I throw it and I like land it up on top? That's really hard to do. Does that count? No. What if I throw it, and it's like a beautiful shot, and it's like psh, hits the chains and then skips out? Does that count? No, it doesn't. Very disappointingly, it doesn't. I've only had one shot at a hole-in-one, and it chained out. However, imagine, like, because like, I play with people like 30% of the time. About 70% of the time, I'm playing solo. So what if, like, while I'm out playing by myself, I'm sitting and I'm looking at, like, a 60-yard upshot, and I just, you know, I sling it and I let it go, and it's like, beautiful shot, hits here and skips out. And I'm like, I mean, it hit inside the basket. It hit inside the basket. So you know what? I think that should count. And so for me, in my personal game, at my own time, at my own leisure, no one else is out here. I don't have a ref or the PDGA here. For me, that shot counts, right? And so now I've, I've, I've made one compromise. And so next time I'm out playing, I'm about to birdie hole 15. If you ever played our course, you know what that means. Hole 15 is horrible. I'm about to birdie hole 15, and I sling it. Perfect shot. And now I go, well... It's actually harder to get it on top of the basket than to get it in the basket (laughs) I think that counts right so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that one and now y'all know the next time I do that I'm not suddenly gonna be like that doesn't count no it's always gonna count for me now because I made the compromise one time right so what about the next time I line up and I just send a a line drive I have a shot at a a hole in one which is an ace and it comes in (sighs) boom I mean, an inch lower, and it's in. Just saying, one one inch, and we're there. You know, if that counts, and that counts, why can't, I got an ace, guys. Got my first ace on the card. Look at that. And slowly, over time, I've made so many compromises, I'm no longer even playing the game that I love. Slowly, over time, I've changed the rules so much, I'm no longer playing the same game. You see, this is just disc golf. It doesn't matter a whole lot. But what we as Christians end up doing is we end up changing the rules that God has set before us. And we make small compromise after small compromise after small compromise until we look back and the faith that we once loved no longer looks anything like it what it used to. And it all starts with one single compromise. One compromise. I'm just gonna tell this one little lie. I'm just gonna look at this one little thing. I'm just gonna hang out with these friends. It's just one drink, it's just one time. But friends, sin doesn't want you for a moment. Sin wants you for a lifetime. Every single sin is addictive and it wants you for a lifetime. And so if you make compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise, soon you'll look at your life and realize your life looks nothing like what you wanted it to. You'll look at your faith and you'll realize your faith is nothing but a a shadow of what it once was. And you'll look at your relationship with God and realize it's not there. Because we have made compromise after compromise. And guess what? Each individual compromise, just like our example, is easy to justify. Sin will make itself easy to justify. Right? We're going to look at Solomon today, and we're going to look at where he is. But I want you to remember, he didn't just start here. He started with one compromise. He started with marrying one pagan wife. He started with gathering a few too many horses. He started with gathering just a little bit too much wealth. He started with worshiping just one false god. And he could justify each and every one because it was a small compromise. I know very few people that wake up in the morning and they're like, I'm going to go get addicted to crack cocaine today. (laughs) Right? It starts with one compromise. One small, justifiable compromise that leads to another small, justifiable compromise that leads to another small, justifiable compromise until we're so far in we can't see where we started. That's what we're going to see with Solomon today. And remember, this all started with one justifiable compromise for God's commands. Let's go to chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1, read through about verse 3. It says, Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Uh, A Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said that the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely, listen to this, they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Unfortunately, it's not talking about the words of God. It's talking about Solomon clinging to these women in love. But how can you love 700 wives? He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now remember, when I talked about the thunder in the distance, he married one wife. He married the daughter of Pharaoh from Egypt, which was breaking two commandments, mind you, but it was one wife. He was allowed one wife, right? He was allowed one wife. It was was a small compromise, But 40 years later, 40 years into the reign of Solomon, we look at his life and he has 700 pagan wives, 300 concubines, and they have turned his heart away from the Lord to where he is seeking and worshiping their false gods. It was an instant. He didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to marry 700 women. No, he made one compromise after another. He needed a peace treaty with Egypt. He needed a peace treaty with this country. He needed a peace treaty with this kingdom. He needed a peace treaty with this nation. And she's pretty. And, and I think I'm going to go this way. And he has an unmarried daughter. And before you know it, he has a 1,000 women in his life. Whoo. Yeah. Verse 4. For when Solomon was old... It says that God, God um, it says that he did not wholly follow God. He didn't wholly worship God. So that leads me to think that he was still worshiping Yahweh, that is the God of Israel. He was still worshiping God. He was still sacrificing to God, but he wasn't wholly, fully worshiping God. Can I just say for a second that God does not want your partial worship? God doesn't desire partial worship. He doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your entire life. And so what, what Solomon had done is he hadn't, he hadn't gotten rid of God. He just kind of added a few more in on top of it. And he's like, you know, I'm going to worship God, but I'm also going to worship these other false gods as well. And what he's trying to do is trying to give God his partial worship. God doesn't desire our partial worship. And no, we're probably not going to partially worship Solomon. I don't know any of y'all going out on the weekends and sacrificing to the temple of Ashtoreth. I, I, I don't know anyone doing that. But what we have a tendency to do is we come and we worship God on Sunday, and then we worship the big dollar on Monday, right? We worship God on Wednesday, but then we we worship the bottle on Saturday, right? We worship God when we're with these people, but we worship a good time when we're with these people. We worship God when we're with our spouse, and we worship sex when we're with this other person, right? That's partial worship today. We're not talking about false gods. We're talking about choosing sin over God. And any time you choose sin over God, actually any you choose anything over God, you've created an idol for yourself. That can be a good thing, that can be a bad thing, that can be sinful, that can be non-sinful, that can be a, that can be a, a godly thing. But if you, choose, if you choose church over God, you've created an idol out of church. right? You can create an idol out of anything that you choose and you put above God. That's partial worship. God desires to be worshipped fully. After all, did God partially save you or did he fully save you? For a God who fully saved you, let us fully worship him. Let us fully worship him. Let us give him everything. Because he deserves more than we could ever give. So let's not partially worship. Let's fully worship. And really, I mean, good words. Yeah, sure, we said some good things. But really, let's reflect on our lives. How? What is drawing worship away from God? What in our life is drawing worship away from our God? Why, what is it in our life we say we don't have 15 minutes to read the Bible for, right? What, what is it we, we don't have time to stop and pray for? Well, what, what in our life is drawing us away from fully worshiping God? Identify those things and correct them. Verse seven says, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So what I wanna note here is I wanna break our Western View of thinking for just a moment. When we think of Solomon worshiping false gods, a lot of times we're thinking like, what, "What would happen today?" Right? If we're saying like someone's worshiping a false god, they're like they're going to like a different church or diff- a different religion. Like they're going to like a Buddhist temple or they're going to a a, a Muslim like mosque. Right? They're they're going to say that's what we're thinking in our heads. We're like, you know, he's just going to a church service for another god. Like that's bad, but you know, it's not that bad. No, no, the, these pagan gods desired what was evil in the sight of God. So Ashtoreth, in particular, she is the goddess of sex, sex and fertility. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex and fertility. How you worshipped her was through sexual immorality performed at her temple. Right. It wasn't church service. You didn't sit and listen. Did other stuff. Right? It was a, a temple of sexual immorality. That's how you worshipped Uh The, the other uh, god that was mentioned here... Um, uh, um, not Moloch. Moloch was the one I was going to end with. Who was the other one? Uh, Kimesh. Kimesh was the god of of power and victory. Uh, and as per all the pagan gods, he would accept human sacrifice to to uh, alleviate yourself and give yourself uh, victory and power. Right. And so you would worship him through human sacrifice. Moloch, which is the worst one, uh, we got to hear in great detail how this how Moloch was worshipped in Israel. We'll spare you all the details. But what happened is they would build a, a, a statue, an idol to Moloch, and his arms would be outstretched with his hands open, and they would build a fire of hot coals underneath it, and they would heat this cast iron statue until it is white hot, and they would sacrifice their newborn children in his hands. That was what it looked like to worship Moloch, who Solomon was worshiping, who he built a temple on the Mount of Olives to. He built a temple to Moloch, and they worshiped him there. You worshiped Moloch through child sacrifice. You know why you worshiped Moloch? It's enough that they did it, but you know why? It was for uh, self-perseverance. The thought was that if you would sacrifice to Moloch, then it would improve your life and the life of your family, whether it be financially or health or whatever other reason. We think of these gods we're like, this is insane. This is crazy. This is stupid. Who would do that? We're still doing it in America today. I mean, look at the goddess of the goddess of sexual immorality. Can you tell me anything that is more worshipped in America today than sex? I'll wait. Sexual immorality is worshipped fully today. What's that? That's worship to the goddess Astrath. Kemosh, the god of power and victory. You would improve yourself and improve your rank and improve your power by sacrificing others. Can you tell me any political sphere in the world where human beings are not being sacrificed for other people? I feel like we should have a temple to Kimosh in Washington, D.C. Because they are sacrificing. I mean, essentially sacrificing good people to raise through the ranks. But the worst one is Moloch. The sacrifice of child. Do you know the number one cause of death in the United States is abortion? Number one, it's time close, is abortion. Did you know that the survey says 93% of abortions are for self-gain. 93% of abortions are for self-gain. That is for uh, whether it's education, it's financial, it's too young, you're in school, emotional trauma, whatever. Like 93% of abortions are so that you will have a better life. That is exactly why they sacrificed to Moloch. Is so that they would have a better life. We should really see a statue to Moloch at every Planned Parenthood. Because that's why 93% of sacrifices with almost 2 million abortions a year, 93% of them are for personal gain. Listen, this isn't political either. This is, this is biblical. Um, God says in Psalm, can you guys put this scripture up in Psalm? I did not mark it in my Bible. It says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Let's stop right there for just a second. It talks specifically in scripture about how these false gods have power. That the false gods can actually help them in ways. Guess what? An imaginary figure doesn't help you. A lot of scholars believe that the false gods that were worshipped back then and truly still today were actually demons of Satan. And that's why they possess power. And they actually, they could do things because you were sacrificing giving to them. And so what we see here specifically, David is writing about sacrificing your sons and daughters to demons. The blood of their sons and daughters, they poured out innocent blood, and then the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood, Listen this: thus they became unclean by their acts, and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them, their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power." I hate to say it, but America is looking very similar to whoever David's talking about right here. Now, I'm going to pause right there and say that I do realize that in talking about this, that there are some that have made mistakes in the past. And what I want you to know is that your past doesn't define your your present, right? Each person here has a past. We've all done things that we're not proud of, right? There are people that in my past still can't believe that I actually get up on a stage like this and talk about God, Right, your past does not define you. But what I want to encourage you to do is that in your present, be more like David than like Solomon. You see, David, why David was so good? It wasn't because David was good. We studied David's life. Dude had some issues. Okay? What David did is that when he would mess up, he would repent of his sin and he would turn back to God. That was it. It wasn't David's perfection. It was David's humility. It was David's repentance that brought him into the eyes of God. What made David a man after God's own heart wasn't how good he was, but how good the God was that he turned to. You see, what we see, we don't see that with Solomon, though. Solomon, he messes up, he sins, and he makes mistakes, and he is so prideful. This is where I think that that wisdom is actually a curse for him, because he thinks that he knows best, and rather than repenting and turning back to God and saying, God, I messed up, God, I failed, God, I fell short, I give you everything. Instead of doing any of that, he goes deeper into his sin. Just look right here. We have uh, this about Chemosh and Molech, and then listen to this. Verse 8, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. What did he do? He built temples and altars for all 1,000 of his wives. Sure, there was probably some God overlap there, and maybe he didn't build multiple temples for those. But for all the wives that he had that made offerings and sacrifice to their gods, he built temples for them. He had one temple for God, mind you, and hundreds for these false gods. In Israel, You see, he fell further and further into his sin. This is the promise that you and I have today. That no matter how far gone you are, you can repent. It means your sin's here, you turn this way. That's all repenting is. It's turning away from your sin, turning your back to sin and pursuing God. No matter how far gone you are, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what your past looks like, <clears throat> here it is, no matter what your past looks like, You can turn away from that, and you can pursue a relationship with God, and he will accept you with open arms. All you have to do is turn away from that sin and chase Jesus, and you will be saved. Solomon doesn't do that. He's given opportunity after opportunity and after opportunity. Verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord and the God of Israel, who had appeared to him, notice this, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he would not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. I don't know if you guys have heard this. I've, I've heard this probably a lot in youth group, but a lot of people always say, if God would just speak to me, right? If I could just see God, if someone could just prove God, if God would just answer this prayer, if God would just take care of this thing, if God would just let me know he's listening, if God would just, if God would just, if God would just. Look at Solomon. God just did everything for Solomon. God literally appeared to him twice. He saw and heard the voice of God twice. God blessed him with wisdom that surpassed all humanity. God gave him the nation of Israel. God gave him power. God gave him money. God gave him everything. And what does Solomon want? More. More. It's human nature. Humans will always desire more. If God gave you everything, you would desire more. And so what we don't like to hear and what I don't necessarily like to say is I believe that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because if he gave us something, we would want more. And then if he gave us that, we would want more. And then if he gave us that, we would want more. Until the thing that we so desired destroyed us and led us away from him. Because that's what happened with Solomon. He wanted more and he got it. And then he wanted more and he got it. And he wanted more and he got it. Until he finally got so far away from God that he no longer heeded the words that God had given him. The source of his wisdom. Right? I don't know where I'm at in slides, but let's see. His answers are better than our desires. His answers are better than our desires. Because a lot of times God's answers won't necessarily be what our desires were. It won't be what our wants were. But of course, if God only ever gave us what we wanted, I wouldn't think that he was much of a God. Right? If his knowledge and 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 and, and his knowledge and will was limited to my knowledge and my will, that's pretty puny. God says that his thoughts are better than our thoughts, his ways are better than our ways. And that he works all things together for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. That he works all things, the good, the bad, the ugly. And our faith is in God who works those things together, not the things themselves. Even the tough situations that we can't understand, we have to trust that God is in control. And God knows what he is doing. Verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon... Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Now what I want to note here is those words right there are remarkably similar to what God said to Saul through the prophet Samuel. When he was talking about David, He said to Sam or Samuel said to Saul from God that God will tear the kingdom of Israel away from you and give it to someone better than you. And this is exactly what God says here to Solomon that he will tear the kingdom away from him. Verse 12. Yet for the sake, yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of your ha- the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. God so loved David. Again, not because David was perfect, by any means. But God so loved David that he was not going to do this to David's son, but to the son of Solomon, that he would rip it away. We see that one nation will be, or one tribe will be kept by the son, which would be Rehoboam. Uh, We'll we'll read about him in a few weeks. Uh, But it would be Rehoboam. He will get one tribe. In reality, he'll get two tribes because the tribes of Benjamin and Judah were so close and tight-knit. They kind of, uh, uh, one absorbed the other there. And so we end up with the two tribes separated from the ten. Right, But God so loved David that his blessing continues on through David's son. However, Solomon had fallen so short that his curse will go through his son. Can I suggest for just a moment that the way we act is generational? Our sins are generational. Our blessings are generational. What are you passing on to the next generation? Are you passing on a cluster of sins or are you passing on a cluster of blessings? David passed on blessings. Solomon passed on curses. What we do impacts the next generation. The way that we raise them impacts the next generation. The importance of God in our household impacts the next generation. What are we leaving to our next generation? Because the way you live your life will impact generations to come. How are you impacting them? With blessings or with curses? The next line here, I stop. This is where I spent most of my sermon. Because this went against some theology I've heard. Verse 14, I'm only going to read half of it too. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Come on, let's be honest. Every time something bad happens, who do we blame it on? That guy, Satan, the enemy, Lucifer, the the angel of darkness, he did it. Verse 14 says, the Lord raised up an enemy against Solomon. No one else, wasn't Satan. Solomon could be like, the devil's after me. No, buddy. Afraid not. Why would God raise up an adversary against his own people? Can I suggest for a moment, we'll come back to those, that God values your salvation more than your happiness? That God values, see, in America, our, our ultimate value is happiness. It's joy. It's comfort. It's peace. That is, like, that is top of the list, your happiness isn't even close <laughs> to the top of importance list for God. God values your ability, your, your, your salvation, your ability to be saved, where your soul is more than your happiness. And God values your sanctification more than your comfort. God values you looking more like Jesus than he does how comfortable you are. Right in America, we're all about like cool down beds and warm blankets and comfortable shoes and all because we're all about comfort. But God really cares how much you look like Jesus. And so in this moment, we see God raises up an adversary. In fact, he raises up three adversaries uh, against Solomon, essentially against Israel. He raises up three different adversaries. The three we're going to see is Hadad the Edomite. Hadad the Edomite, Reason the Gentile, and Jeroboam the Israelite. So what happens here is that God raises up an adversary from the north, an adversary from the south, and an adversary from within. Hadad was the, uh, a, a child whenever Joab, who was the, the commander for David, Joab went into Edom and killed all the males. And Hadad was a child at that time. He had taken refuge in Egypt. And while he was there, he found out that David and Joab had both died. And he basically swore a vengeance against Israel. And so he's in pursuit Reason was a uh, servant of an army commander whenever um, David was king, and they fought and, and killed them, and Reason swore a vendetta against Israel. Jeroboam's an interesting one. Jeroboam was an Israelite. He served under King, so- or king Solomon. In fact, he is, he, Solomon talks about how good of an administrator that Jeroboam is. In fact, he puts him over all of the workforce in Israel. But Jeroboam's name means he contends for the people. And Solomon was taxing the people so much that he was getting filthy rich and they were struggling. And so for whatever reason, Jeroboam turns against Solomon from the inside. Now, what's interesting here is Jeroboam, a man with no royal blood, mind you. He's not related to David. He's not related to Solomon in any way. No royal blood about him. God seems to be on his side. The prophet Ahijah goes and speaks to uh, Jeroboam, and he says this to him. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you. Speaking of Solomon to uh, Rehoboam. I will give to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. The city where I have chosen to put my name, and I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command, listen to this, guys, and if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you." That sounds remarkably similar to what God said to David before David was king. And this is what God has instructed every king so far has been to keep my commandments, walk in my ways. After David, they couldn't continue even one generation before they fell away and fell short. But God comes and he speaks through uh, the prophet Ahijah to, uh, to Jeroboam. Hearing this, I feel like at this point Solomon would see some recap coming, right? Solomon would see that this looks really similar to what happened to my dad, right? And so we would think that Solomon would say, "Okay, God's on this guy's side. I better also be on this." Side. Let's see what Solomon says. First forty. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled, rose, and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. We thought that maybe Solomon would look a little bit more like his dad, but he ends up looking a lot more like King Saul, that God had raised someone up, and so he sought to kill him. Again, he sought to oppose the will of God. This is what Saul did. This was Saul's demise. He opposed the will of God, and this is what we see Solomon doing here, opposing the will of God. In fact, Jeroboam will be the one who leads the charge that splits the nation of Israel into ten and two. It'll be Jeroboam that does that because he has God on his side. We see here, though, that even in, this, even in this, God knows what he's doing. He's painting a picture of what is to come. Because we see that Solomon faces off against Hadad, the Edomite, against Reason, the Gentile, and Jeroboam, the Israelite. And King Solomon fell short when King Solomon faced these three enemies. Yet we have a new king. Remember, God gave a promise, a, a, a promise to David that his son would rule and reign forever. But God wasn't talking about Solomon. And he wasn't talking about Rehoboam. He was talking about Jesus, the son in the line of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will rule and he will reign forever. You see, Solomon faced Hadad the Edomite, Reason the Gentile, and Jeroboam the Israelite. Jesus, when he came, he faced Herod the Edomite. Rome, the Gentiles, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the Israelites. He faced the same three enemies. But where King Solomon failed, King Jesus reigned supreme. And he reigned victorious. And what that should tell us is that battles that are too big for men are not too big for our God. Right? Whatever stands before you, whatever problem that is in front of you, it's not too big for your God. And when God speaks a promise, it will come to fruition. He promised Solomon he'll tear the kingdom from his, from his son, and it will happen. And he told David that his, he would have a son that ruled and reigned forever, and it will happen. God's promises never fall short. And that's why we can take comfort in this broken world when God says to us that he will never leave us nor will he forsake us. That he is always here, that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. That he says to us that that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. right? That when he says that if you say with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and that he died for me, then you will be saved. That is the promises that we cling to. That is the hope that we cling to. Is that Jesus, his promises will reign supreme. And that all the enemies and all the things that we face and all the difficulties in life and all all the suffering and all the hardship, he says that he will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away every tear. That is our hope, is in the one who wipes away every tear. And so wherever you're at here today, if you feel like you're Solomon and you're just surrounded by enemies on all sides, you feel like you're in the midst of the storm. I'd like to introduce you to the one who calms storms. I'd like to introduce you to the one that sets chained people free. The one that opens deaf ears and opens blind eyes. The one who makes the lame walk. And the one who makes the sick well. We have a God that is greater than every problem. A solution to every problem. And we worship him. We worship him and him alone. We don't partially worship our God. We fully worship our God and we give him everything. And in return, he gives us everything. That's the God that we place our hope in today. You see, we have two examples that we can follow. We can follow David or we can follow Solomon. And we've seen the outcome of Solomon. And we've seen the outcome of David. Imitate David. You will make mistakes. You will mess up. You will fall short. Life will get hard. Turn to God in everything. In every situation, turn to God. If we do that, we'll experience joy and understanding that surpasses the present situation. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us, God. I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be here, Lord. I just pray that you'd be here in this place, God, that you'd be with each and every person that is here, God, that you know every problem, every struggle, um, every hardship, Lord. And I, I just pray that that you would come calm hurting people, God, that you would heal broken hearts, God, that you would just give peace and comfort where it's needed today, Father. I lift up each person here to you today, Lord. We love you, God, and we trust you. In Jesus' name.